Hello, welcome to the Trustworthy AI podcast from Truera. In this series, we speak to leading AI practitioners to demystify the concept of trustworthy AI, focusing initially on financial services. We uncover the real extent of AI adoption in the industry today, the importance of building trust to ensure impact at scale, and practical ways of getting there. My guest today is Tobias Bayer, author of Understand, Manage, and Prevent Algorithmic Bias, perhaps one of the earliest books on trustworthy AI released back in 2019. Tobias, based in Taiwan, is a pioneer in data science and in the application of analytics and psychology to risk management. After more than two decades at McKinsey, he now supports a select set of fintechs and startups as senior advisor and pursues psychological research in cooperation with the University of Cambridge. In his advisory work, he focuses on innovative risk management solutions that use advanced analytics, non-traditional data, debiasing techniques, and behavioral segmentation analytics. In today's session, we will talk about his book on bias and algorithms and about practical ways in which organizations can go about addressing it. We will talk via detours into Greek literature, German philosophers, and martial arts about what it is like to be a data scientist in a financial institution. And we'll have a European AI practitioner's views into the differences between Asia and the West in this fascinating space. Tobias, it's great to have you here. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Shamik. Very happy to be here. Hello. Let's start with that book. You've literally written the book on algorithmic bias. It's a book I found extremely useful as a practitioner in this field. Tell us more about it. How did it come about? What made you write it? What's the reaction been so far? Well, to be honest, I really had two reasons. The, the obvious one was that algorithmic bias is recognized as a very important topic. And what was interesting that the publisher, when, when APRIS approached me and asked me whether I would be interested in writing a book about algorithmic bias, they said they had read some of my articles and they found that while a lot of people write about the problems, I was back then almost the only author um, writing about solutions, how to tackle it. And as a consultant, I'm convinced that's all that matters is how do you solve problems? What can you do better? Giving practitioners both in terms of data scientists, but also in terms of managers, business owners who need to use algorithms, very practical advice on how to manage and prevent algorithmic bias was kind of one big mission. But there was a hidden agenda also. I used the book to more broadly put down not everything I know about building algorithms, but what I thought is most important to build good algorithms. When I started with the developing algorithms, there wasn't even the term algorithmic bias. All I saw out there were a lot of bad algorithms that was sometimes because algorithm were biased and sometimes for other reasons. But I saw how, how some banks had huge losses, how other banks lost big opportunities by systematically not giving credit to certain customer segments and so forth. Therefore, I approached the topic of just making better decisions. And fighting algorithm was really part of it. That's for me still today kind of one of the key points that fighting algorithmic bias should not be kind of one more thing you do like flossing teeth, but it's just almost a side product by building good and the best possible algorithms. Thank you so much, Tobias. I think you make a couple of very good points. And I think primarily you're saying a biased or unethical algorithm is first and foremost a not very good algorithm. And we should probably focus on fixing the full problem rather than just looking at a bias piece. I have to say, as someone who's read the book, I completely agree with you. It's, it's one of the best books which a practitioner could really go after. 
A bit unfair to ask you this, given that you are an ex-McKinsey man. If you had to do a classic three bullet points answer, what would you highlight as the characteristics of a trustworthy or, or just good AI algorithm? Fundamentally, I think the first thing is if I am exposed to an algorithm as a subject, like as a customer, as an employee or whatsoever, first of all, I should be able to trust that this algorithm really gives the best possible prediction based on the information at hand, and that also the prediction or answer given by the algorithm is roughly correct. Because if not, I would expect the algorithm to simply say, I don't know, and refrain from making a prediction. The second point is I should also trust that whoever is the owner for the algorithm has basically done a due diligence on how this algorithm will affect our people to the extent that it shows that the algorithm will make certain mistakes or uh, will negatively affect certain people that the owner has taken actions to basically prevent harm from the algorithm. And the third one is that I would kind of expect that the overall decision architecture is such that where basically an algorithm is not working properly, there is, an, is a mechanism in place to address that and to eliminate or overcome the bias that the algorithm has. Thank you so much, Tobias. You haven't lost your McKinsey touch. Your three bullets are still as succinct as ever. So you've talked about the what a trustworthy AI system uh, as both of us mentioned, your book is quite deep in the how as well. So if you now think a little bit to some of your past and current clients, and you look at the most advanced clients in this space, those who are building good, trustworthy algorithms, could you share a little bit on what they're doing practically to make this a reality on the ground? And also, if possible, what are some of the early mistakes they've made, which others further down the line can learn from? A mistake is if you seek fighting or addressing algorithmic bias as one more tedious compliance thing that you have to do because that is intrinsically demotivating. It detaches this piece of work basically from your core mission as data scientists to build a good algorithm. The transformation to building unbiased algorithms as a core element of a data scientist's practice is when it's seen as piece and parcel of the core development process. Really leading um, institutions in that area do right is that fighting algorithms has become industrial strength and it's embedded in the standard procedures and tools. The tools here are a very important piece because what would motivate people to do the right thing? If they know that they get a better solution and they get it easier, faster, with less effort. In my book, I, as an example, I describe something I call the data x-ray. It's both a process and a toolkit where you go through six steps, and in these six steps you do a serious, very targeted analysis, which try with minimal effort, tease out the maximum insight about all the problems you might have in your data set. And bias is a central concern, but it's not the only one. So, for example, data quality issues more broadly, that missing values may have an ancient coding of 999. If nobody tells a data scientist, a lot of data scientists don't figure that out until very late in the development process for, for, for an algorithm, and then all the work they have done needs to be redone. So it's one of the issues which the data x-ray 
is bringing to the fore very, very quickly, immediately once you get new data. But it also pulls out a lot of different techniques to detect potential sources for algorithmic bias or actually shows kind of the data in, in one way or the other is biased. And these tools are brilliant because they make life easier for the data scientist. The other thing then is really to basically get data scientists to think more broadly. One big point I make in my book is very often the root of the problem is outside of the sphere of influence of the data scientist. If the data given to the data scientist already is a problem, if the process generating the data is causing the problem and the fools, the data scientist often cannot fix it, but needs to go back to the business owner and has to say, well, I cannot build an unbiased algorithm because I have this and that problem in the data. And so you need to help me to generate better data, unbiased data, or fix whatever is kind of broken in the process. To facilitate that, banks have a benefit that they have a formal governance structure with model validation. And so what I'm trying to do is to basically make that validation kind of an alley to the data scientist in getting more weight against the business. Again, a very practical tool I've included in my book is a Q&A style model documentation where basically the model documentation is a series of questions to the data scientist. It applies a lot of cognitive psychology insights. Uh, so one of the big challenges is the overconfidence. A lot of people will agree in theory, yes, there is a big problem with bias, but then they will go on to say, luckily I specifically am so experienced and good at it, I don't have that problem. In this Q&A, I ask a lot of questions such as given the known shortcomings of the data that you have received, what could be sources of algorithmic bias? What could be other problems coming up? It's called a pre-mortem. It's a great way to basically force the brain to think more about potential problems, surface them, and then decide maybe I should not go on with the flawed data at hand. And going through that thought process then also kind of creates a trigger to go back to the business and say, well, actually, I cannot use the data you have given me because if I do that, in the end, the algorithm will produce biased predictions and you either might have avoidable losses or you might lose good business if you turn down a lot of good customers just because, I don't know, the color of their skin or something. And that's the type of tools or techniques I found to create this industrial strength process for building algorithms, which elevates in general the quality of the algorithms, but in particular, also fights the algorithmic bias very, very effectively. Tobias, that's an extremely insightful answer. And I think the, the very richness of the answer points to the amount of work you've done in this space over more than two decades. My own three bullets version of it takeaway from that is first and most important, don't treat bias or trustworthiness as a regulatory or controls problem. Make it broader than that. Otherwise, it just becomes perhaps a box ticking exercise. The second thing I took away was the importance of tools and, and both the tools you mentioned, the Q&A for the data scientist and the data x-ray for those who will read the book. They're extremely useful. I, I completely agree. And then I think the third thing, quite an interesting perspective, which is it's also about making data scientists and I dare say others involved in the model and data processes think more broadly than their day jobs. 
that mindset of how to build better models, how to build models that can be deployed in the wild, if you will, is as important as the technical aspects as well. So it's very, very insightful indeed. Just staying on that last theme. Now, if I look at some of the data scientists that are looking to enter an industry like financial services, sometimes I hear an argument from them saying, this is a heavily regulated industry. It appears that it takes a huge amount of effort even to get a small model productionized. What would be your message or advice to them? Well, especially here in Asia, I think it's a very long tradition that you learn things, could be martial arts, calligraphy, whatever you really want to learn as an apprentice from the masters. So you try to go to the people who do it best, not kind of who do the shoddiest work because you can get away very easily with whatever you deliver. Really, I would look at the financial services industry as a pioneer in data science. The use of algorithms goes back to the 1960s versus Altman Z-scores. So the industry clearly is decades ahead of many other industries in using algorithms. What you basically see is just the maturity of the thinking around algorithms, around responsibility around algorithms. Many other industries are definitely catching up. And maybe what we see is that the public scrutiny is kind of going up first and then kind of these industries scramble to actually figure out how to respond to that and how to learn from its mistakes in the past and build better algorithms. So, for example, we now are in the middle of a very big debate, for example, in Europe, in, in North America, with, with recent elections, the, the role of social media in really forming and manipulating public opinion, which then can really very badly damage processes in society. If you think about gender bias, just think about that there's a role that the Facebook ad placement algorithm plays where it was discovered that women are just less often receiving job advertisements for high-paying jobs. And that creates a bias in the job opportunities they have and therefore ultimately in the career options that female Facebook users have. The, the argument for financial services is that by having already all that thinking and that governance in place, you really learn how to responsibly develop and deploy AI and can then apply that in any other industries, really knowing both that the tools, the techniques to diagnose problems, to build more robust AI, and to just navigate the many different tensions you have because data is limited. Some of these biases really originate in deep societal biases and traditions. It's very often a very challenging task to, to be responsible, to be ethical in the way you go about AI. This ethical aspect is nowhere as advanced as in the financial services industry. You live and work in Asia. You're, of course, originally from Europe. Do you think there are real differences in social and governmental attitudes to data and algorithms across these geographies, particularly Asia and Europe? Unfortunately, yes. And to be honest, it really, really worries me. It's kind of ironic because I have a um, humanistic tradition that I studied Latin and ancient Greek and the ancient Greek philosophy writes a lot about the world going in big cycles. And so Europe, of course, has been for extended periods of time 
quite at the forefront of, of innovation and developing new things, including the computer and a lot of the things which we now use in AI. What it bred is that I think many Europeans think, well, we know already. And so there is now suddenly, not suddenly, but increasingly, I feel this this resistance to change. Germany is particularly bad. Like if, if you have even the most cautious suggestion to improve something and you're merely suggesting something which you already have seen successfully done in 20 other markets or geographies, you immediately get a dozen reasons why this is impossible and should not be done and very little zeal to just try out things or to still learn and evolve further. In Asia, it's really the opposite. I think every time I'm engaging with a client in, in Asia, I'm impressed by the eagerness to change, to improve. It seems to be kind of a given. The question is not if you want to learn and change and improve, it's only how, in, in what direction, what is the best next step to take. The result of that quite clearly must be that at some point Asia will just be so far ahead of Europe that my very sad outlook for Europe is probably it's going to be a big kind of Disney world for Asian tourists. But otherwise, I fear that, that Europe will be increasingly irrelevant in technology such as AI if there is not a quite dramatic change in embracing it and pursuing it as an opportunity. Thank you so much. That is a sobering thought. I guess just looking ahead into the future a little bit and looking perhaps a bit more positively, as you look ahead to the next three to five years, what applications of AI and predictive analytics do you feel most excited about? I mean, that can be in finance or, or more broadly as well. There are two types of applications. On the one hand, I really hope that basically a lot of dumb things which today have kind of zero intelligence, will get a little bit of intelligence, kind of very, very focused applications. So for example, when you think of traffic lights, how often have you stood in front of a, of a red traffic light and there was no other pedestrian car, anything, anywhere as far as the eye could see. In some cultures, you just cross. In Germany in particular, you wait until the light becomes green, but it's definitely a waste of time, a waste of gasoline if someone is, is sitting in the car. Little things like traffic lights with a little camera who see, okay, there's nobody coming from this direction, so no point in keeping the green light open for this direction. Let's switch it to red. And if somebody else is waiting in a different lane, different direction, let's already give a green light there. Things like that. At the same time, I think then there are also areas where very advanced AI can enable dramatic improvements in quality of life. The medical area is for me the number one opportunity here. Just the ability to diagnose correctly and then also just use AI in very innovative ways to treat diseases. For example, there is this budding research that you basically match different available drugs with the genome of the patient and you kind of get a perfect match of a particular patient to one or the other drug treating the same disease. I think there's a third dimension where I hope that also the future will take us to a, to a new level, but that's kind of the double-edged side of AI, because I also believe that if we don't get much further ahead in thinking about how to use AI 
responsibly. There is clearly a risk of AI also turning against us. Just if you think about marketing, I think there is, is increasingly no boundary between doing marketing to increase sales and outright manipulating individuals to their own and to society's detriment. And if we literally lose our free will and become puppets at the mercy of very refined algorithms, it's a very dire outlook. And so therefore, I also hope that the future will bring a much clearer understanding of where to draw the lines, what to allow AI to do and what not to um, allow AI. I always think of this famous poem of the German poet Goethe. It's called The Sorcerer's Apprentice story about the apprentice trying out a spell on a broom uh, to bring water. As the broom brings more and more water and the house increasingly is drowning in the floods, the apprentice realizes that he hasn't learned yet how to make the broom stop again. That's exactly the thing which I hope we will also achieve in the next five years, to really figure out when and how do we have to make AI stop again to prevent it from turning against us. Tobias, thank you so much. In the course of this half hour, I think you've talked about Greek literature, you've talked about Goethe, and you've talked about martial arts. I must admit, I wasn't expecting to hear all of those things mentioned in a discussion on trustworthy AI, but here we are. Thank you so much. It's been extremely insightful. Really pleased to have you here today. Thank you, Shamik. Same, it was a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this interesting. For more information, please swipe on the cover art. You can follow Truera on LinkedIn and Twitter or visit our website for future podcasts in this series as we continue to look at different aspects of building trust in AI. Thank you.